Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production, available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel, your host. So happy to have you with us for this episode. I wanted to do something on the Warriors specifically after they won their second championship in three years, and I knew exactly who I wanted to talk with, and that is Tim Kawakami, a giant in the Bay Area sports writing community, someone who knows this team inside and out, written for the San Jose Mercury News for years. And so we start with the Warriors a lot about their present and how this team was put together. Then we turn a little bit to their future the contract situations, and then a little bit because Tim has background with it, with comparing this Warriors team to the Shaq Kobe Lakers, which is something that he knows well because he covered some of the early days of Shaq and Kobe together. And this episode is brought to you by Blue Apron, fantastic food delivery service, blueapron.com slash real GM. You can get up to three meals for free, including free shipping on your first order. Conversation runs about 50 minutes. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. You got it. I was thinking at the exit interviews they did between when the Warriors won the championship and the parade, somebody asked Clay Thompson about the biggest adjustments that they made in the finals. And he said, really, we didn't do that much. And I thought that was a good reflection. Obviously, they changed the rotation in game five of the difference between this year's Warriors team and two years ago when they won the championship. Yeah, I mean... You know, Iguodala moving in, obviously, is what they did in 2015, and, and they did a little bit of that, obviously, in Game 5. But you had Kevin Durant. <laughs> you know, they didn't have to make that many changes. That was the whole idea, that they could tweak around that. They could they, they could change a little bit of what they were doing offensively, change a little bit of what they are doing defensively, change the matchups, a little bit of the rotations. But the base was going to get those five guys on the floor when it's time to win the game. And it was five guys who were in the Hamptons, the <laughs> five guys that – they came together. They had a little bit of adjustments, but you know Harrison Barnes is very valuable to this team. But you had to kind of tweak around him, especially if he wasn't making shots. And if you just put Kevin Durant in there, and you have that going, and you have him pretty smoothly working with everyone else, mostly Curry, and you have a healthy Curry, there wasn't much tweaking for them to do. There certainly wasn't much adjusting, coaching. You know, let's time out and let's diagram a whole new offense. That that was the whole point of it. They didn't do a ton of it in 2015. Obviously, the lineup changed, but they had the, they had the they had the base of what they were going to do. I just think they saw what happened in 2016, where their perimeter players could be guarded, especially when when Steph was a little limited. They didn't have that kind of mandatory double team mid range post wherever you put Durant, or he just beats his guy and you just slot him in there. Uh, in 2016, doesn't happen again. And then when we saw it happen in 2017, they could not guard Kevin Durant. And, and, you know, they, hey, listen, Cleveland signaled who they were most worried about, by the way. They still put the most focus on Steph Curry. That freed up Kevin Durant. Didn't get the exact same shots that Harrison Barnes got, let's say, in 2016, but he got a lot of similar looks. And that was all the difference in the world. And the point you got into on Curry is an important and an interesting one of the idea. And Clay Thompson is an example of this, too, that players, especially high end players, can provide value even when they're not necessarily making the shots that are normal because teams are going to pay attention and scheme in different ways and you're reaping those benefits anyway. So the fact that J.R. Smith could not help off Clay Thompson, no matter whether he went two for 17 or he went, you know, six for 10, that matters, of course, because those are points that you can't get back, but you get a lot of this, the, the benefits anyway. Absolutely. Well, I mean, how many times when Durant, you know, we saw those 
dribbles through the entire Cleveland defense, and some of that, or a lot of that, was just bad Cleveland defense. And how much was their guys run into Steph Curry at the three-point line in the open court, saying, that's what I'm worried about, and not about seven-foot Kevin Durant just loping through and dunking. It just the gravity of the court changes, the the sense of what guys can allow. You know, maybe J.R. Smith wasn't told to, to stay with Clay Thompson no matter what, but he was worried about it. He didn't want Clay Thompson to hit those threes, so he stayed with him. And not that J.R. Smith is the greatest health defender anyway, but it just tells you if you don't have the kind of versatile, you know, aggressive, lengthy players that the Warriors have, getting back to them, they make you make these decisions. And we saw Cleveland make these decisions and get burned by them over and over again. This collection of talent has almost never been put together like this, like the Warriors have, but that's what it does. If you're going to blitz Steph Curry on the pick and roll, and they did very successfully, obviously, in game four, he didn't make great decisions. He got a little tentative with the ball, I thought, and that's what I think was Durant's main point afterwards when he kept saying he's a boss, he's a boss, he got to the free throw line, he got like he's a boss. Yeah, just be aggressive with the ball. Just challenge the double team, and then that threatens them in all these other areas because then they have to collapse on you, and I have to put three people on, on Curry because you beat the double team and you got the third person rotating over. That screws up everything. So I just think that, yeah, if you – you measure it just by shots and points. It's fine. People do it all the time. I like looking at how that, that player affects everything else. Durant was the finisher. Dur- Durant closed this, obviously. Durant was the best player on the court if you, you, know, if you discount LeBron James, and I, I shouldn't do that probably. But for the Warriors, Durant was the one who, who finished everything. Man, I think it started with Steph Curry, and everyone else on the floor had an effect on that too. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. And what struck me about the Durant-Curry combination, and this goes even back to when like you, Ethan, and I would talk about this possibility back in 2014, you know, long before any of us ever wrote about it, yep. was the idea that both of those guys do not take bad shots. And the shots they the shots they end up with are, are overwhelmingly good. So you don't you can't bait them into anything. Because there are other circumstances, especially before LeBron got his jumper back, where you know you can bait a lot of uh, even great players. You can get them into that. Russell Westbrook's a great example of this. You can bait them into things that aren't as good. But with Curry and Durant, it's this sense of panic because you know that if you leave them open, it's going to be a good shot and it's probably going to go in. And so having them together, j- there just isn't any place for that energy to go. Yeah, and I, you mentioned Westbrook. I would just say that this is part of their appeal to, to Durant, maybe a strong part of their appeal to Durant was when you're playing with Westbrook, he's going to be dribbling the ball for the first 18 seconds of the shot clock. If he doesn't have something, he will pass it to you with six seconds, and then you got to go do something in six seconds, and that's when we saw some of the hurried, you know, less efficient Durant. And the Warriors banked on that in that seven-game series. They lost <laughs> three of those games. It wasn't the perfect way to do it, but their appeal to Durant was, you're an efficient player and already, and, and this is getting the ball with five, six seconds left in the shot clock, and you just got to go do something. What happens when the ball's moving, the ball's flowing, and you get it with 14 seconds left, and then you can make a decision, and you can pass it, and you know what? If you pass it, you might get it back, and he did get it back a lot. Uh, that, that was a lot of the appeal. That was the sales pitch to Durant, the basketball sales pitch. There are many other sales pitches involved, but that was it. That, that you worked it with this full, and you know, if you had to, honestly, if, if Westbrook was a free agent and not Durant, Warriors one would not have not wanted Westbrook because he doesn't play that way. Great, great player, going to be the MVP. They would not have wanted him. Obviously, play the same position as Curry, but sort of aside to the point. But they believe that Durant was that kind of player and would only be more of it with them, and, and he was being limited offensively, and then we also see defensively what he was capable of with the Warriors. All those things were part of the pitch. All those things were 
Steph Curry will give the ball up to you, and you could give the ball back to him, and then he'll give it back to you. And how many times did that happen with Russell Westbrook? Probably zero. And I think that's that's a great point, and also it illustrates the value for a lot of these guys of playing internationally and just their backgrounds and other things, because Durant didn't have to imagine what it was like to play with Steph Curry. He'd already done it. Yeah. They Not only from yep. a basketball perspective, but from a personal perspective. I mean, there was one year in international, I think it was in FIBA, where the only three, the three guys who went to chapel regularly were Steph Curry, Andre Iguodala, and Kevin Durant. So the relationships are created with these guys now. And while some people say that's a big element of why there's so little enmity in the league now, it also creates these ideas where they're not having to make decisions in the abstract. They have a much better idea of what they're getting into. Absolutely. That was 2010, I believe. It was early in, in Steph's career, obviously. Yeah. And by the way, pretty early in Durant's career, but he was great already, by the way, in 2010. They feel the chemistry. You don't have to just all of a sudden throw it together. Now, you, know, you had to do, you know, Kerr didn't know Durant real well. Some of the other players didn't know him real well. But if you know that locker room, Danny, if Steph Curry and Andre Godala say, this guy's good, this guy's going to work, it's going to happen. And everyone understands that. And Steve Kerr appreciates that. And that also, by the way, Danny, is important for Steph Curry. You know, in this whole ego, Nike versus Under Armour, it's all true. All these things are there on the table for you. But God, would Steph Curry say, you can share my team. This is my team, but I'll step aside for, for Kevin Durant. Well, that could be in play with a lot of other players. One, Steph isn't that kind of player, especially when he knew Durant was the similar kind of mindset. Also, they knew each other. This wasn't going to be uh, maybe if could possibly, you know, this was Steph Curry knowing Kevin Durant, Kevin Durant texting him. This is what happened through the process. Do you really are you really in on this? You're really OK with me coming? Because Durant was concerned and Steph Curry kept on saying, yes, this is what I want. I want championships. I want to win many championships. You come here, we'll go do that. And they could do that because they knew each other. They could do that because they had gone to, to, to events together. They play together. As you mentioned, they gone to chapel together. Could, you know, it's theoretical. It, it might not have worked, even with all that. But they had a much bigger start on it uh, than many other people would have. And Durant could tell that Curry was serious about it. And Curry could tell that Durant was serious about it. And that kind of gets you through the little bums. You know, we wrote about all of them. We talked about them. Oh, wait a minute. Curry was deferring too much to Durant. Then Durant you know, had the ball too much and wasn't giving up. and da, 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 da. Those weren't huge things. Yeah, they were like 30 and 4 when we were writing about them, but could have been bigger. Obviously could have developed into something more serious. Could have been an issue going into the playoffs, but it wasn't. By that point, it just was you know, that's even after Durant got hurt. It just wasn't, it didn't slow them down at all. And maybe, by the way, it kept Durant's legs fresher for the end. You know, hard to say. You missed 20 games. Injury might slow you down. Injury might help you a bit, but I think that the injury coming when it did really did, wasn't a blip for them. It, it, he picked up right where he left off in when it was in the middle of the Portland series. No problems at all, and this was, uh, oh, he came back, and then he got, well, he got a little bump again in, in the Portland series. I just think that that understanding just kind of was stitched together early, and then it might have had a tug or two during the middle of the season, but it was never going to break apart, and, and we saw the result of it you know, throughout the playoffs. One of the more interesting parts of this season for me was that the Warriors had a couple of big bumps, or not big, big for their season, not big for anybody else. Yeah. Uh, with Durant's injury, Kerr stepping away during the playoffs, and then for me, the, the crunch time struggles around Christmas Day, the Memphis game, all that kind of stuff. And what was striking yeah. is that 
I think all of those in some way ended up making them better. You know, so the the struggles yep. around the struggles around the crunch time stuff allowed them to change the rotation, which I think really worked out eventually putting that second unit together with Ian Clark. They had to blow that up for the playoffs, but it worked out well. Durant's injury I thought helped get Curry back on track and, you know, get him kind of right yep. into the right frame of mind. And then Kerr, they they relied a little bit more when they needed to on their starters. The way Mike Brown in game three of the Portland series leaned on those guys, I thought was was significant in a, in, a, in a loose way. And then also, I think it gave them a little bit more juice when he came back because Cleveland was a great challenger. I mean, they have an incredible individual talent. And while having Kerr the whole time would have been helpful, I do think that gave them a little something extra. Yeah, I mean, I agree with all that. I think it's the basis is, is a strong thing. It, 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 all those things could have hurt them in a much more serious way if they weren't as good as they were. Now, that's easy to say, but... I'll just go to the Kerr Mike Brown thing, and I've talked about the doubling effect. They they had two coaches. They didn't know for sure they had two coaches, but once Mike Brown took over and was as steady as he was and was so comfortable working under Kerr's game plan as the head coach and could make his little changes throughout, rotation changes that we all noticed, you know, maybe a little bit more uh, pick-and-roll offense than Kerr would, would do, certainly a little bit more than Kerr would do, but that it all worked within within the framework that Kerr set up. It it just showed what they had. It, it was another sign of, okay, we got Mike Brown here and, and things are going to be okay. And by the way, things might be okay into the future. We'll see about Kerr's health status. Uh, it's the same way with, with, with the Christmas stuff was, wait a minute, okay, instead of it just having the ball have to be in Durant's hands, we could put the ball back in Steph Curry's hands. Well, that's not a huge, you know, obviously it's been in Steph Curry's hands two years, three, four, what happened in what years, he'd he, ball been in his hands. They kind of altered that a little bit for Durant to try to make Durant feel comfortable. Steph was the leading force on that, trying to make Durant comfortable. And they just reassessed and said, well, maybe we could get Steph going again. And then Durant's injury kind of played also, obviously played into that too. Uh, and, and the rotation, he curves on rotation changes throughout. We, we've seen that. He's always tweaked his kind of his guys. He plays a lot of guys. Guys go hot and cold. And then, you know, in the playoffs, he kind of just figures out who are the seven or eight guys he's going to go with, or nine or ten, or, you know, with Kerr, it could be 11, especially when you're playing three centers or four centers if you can't dream on. But I just think that's, again, it's part of the flow of this. They, they wanted to have these options. They wanted to have two superstars. Curry and Durant, one or the other is going to go. When they both go, they're not going to be touchable. They've got two head coaches, Mike Brown and Steve Steve Kerr. They've got two or three or four alternate ways they can run their rotation. This is just how Kerr likes it. He kind of likes the flow of it. Instead of having the same thing over and over and over again, he kind of moves people in and out. And they built a roster now that can do it. That doesn't need to say, oh, wait a minute, this is not, has to be Steph Curry time. If it's not Steph Curry, we're done. That works a lot. You know, that hasn't failed them very often. Uh, but when he was banged up in, Cle- in, in the Cleveland series two, last year, that, that did not help them. Then they brought someone else and they've got a choice. This is, it's an incredible luxury. Every team in the league would want to do it. It's not like the Warriors have the secret. Oh, here's the secret. Let's get two of these guys. Every team would like that. They just haven't have done it. They were smart enough. They accumulated much the cast space and the talent to trade for, to trade out of guys, and they got this situation, and it's a duplicative effect. I keep saying it's a they have doubling of a lot of different things in a way that I don't think any team has ever had. It is special, particularly because they're in their primes or close to it, and so you don't have to worry about you know kind of kind of where it's going for a little bit. But another 
part of, with the doubling that, that really fits. And I've talked for years about how I think of Durant as a basketball pragmatist. I think that's why he's so efficient. It's just that he knows what he's good at. He knows where he wants to be and he makes it work. And that tied in perfectly with the Warriors because really that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to get the best shots and their system is partially fun because they have all this ball and player movement. Everybody gets to touch it, but also because it works. And so it was this marriage that made a lot of sense. And the duplicative part is great because that's the way they've really approached all this. And the hope is that you get can get even more benefits because now, A, you're really good, and B, you're playing the system that is very player-friendly. So you can try to then on the margins get better players than almost anybody else can for minimum contracts or things like that. Yeah, you know, in, in a world where you know, it's pretty set. You know, where do, do teams usually screw up uh, in these long-term contracts? Isn't these middling players, right, that they kind of hope are great players? So you pay them like great players, and they turn out to be middling players. Look at the entire Portland roster, except for Lillard, basically. The Warriors have made a clear call that they're going to have four great players, four players who you know, may not be paid the max, although we know Curry and Durant are going to be. But those are the four. Those are it. And then everyone else, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens with Iguodala and Livingston. Those are the two kind of middling guys. And But everything, everything else is replaceable, everything. And, and bluntly, so are Iguodala and Livingston to some extent. Iguodala less replaceable, but as he gets older, he will be more and more replaceable in their minds. And they've just kind of cleared that out. Like, they're not going to overpay anybody. <laughs> because they got the four guys who who are worth all worth they're worth max. They're not going to pay them all max for a little while at least, and, and they may not be able to. But that's down the road, and they've just cleared that all out. You know, There's the whole Myers Leonard for whatever, you know, Mozgov for whatever, the Wall thing. For, that, that, that's off the table. That's not happening with this team, at least until 2019, 2020, maybe beyond. It's really a clarification, and and I think it's in this league where you know you're not sure about variations and how they're going to work, and you got to overpay. Festus Azili got what 15 million dollars from Portland, uh, and they're going to have to cut him or whatever, however that's going to work. Those sorts of situations aren't going to happen with them, and we know it's happened with them in the past on the previous administration. That's never going to happen, well at least until 2019, 2020, and and, and they're hoping it doesn't happen after that. You have the clarity of these guys are worth way more than we could possibly pay them. Even the Durant Curry Supermaxes, they're worth more than that. Clear. If they were on the open market, they'd be paid fifty million dollars a piece. They're going to pay them thirty-five and thirty-two, whatever next season. In in that formulation, that's about as good as it can get because they don't have to be bidding for these other players that are marginally talented. But because they're on the market, you have to bid them up. They're just not there on that. And again, that's where they get went with, with Barnes and Azili. It's like, these are valuable players. I mean, Azili was valuable last year, but we're, we don't want to pay them what it's going to have to take to keep them. So you know what? Let's take these pieces and Bogut and turn it into Kevin Durant, who is worth more dollars than we could possibly pay him. That's a pretty smart economic calculation. And it's, a, it's I think, in this NBA market, again, easier said than done. These players have to be on your roster or have to want to come to your roster. But when you have that setup, you're never going to overpay Ramon Sessions or, you know, who all these other guys that we've seen, Rudy Gay. That's never going to happen with this team as long as they've got these guys in their, in their primes and they're going to have them in their primes for a while. I just, I, I don't know that that, 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 that economic sense really has registered with people yet. That that's, that those are the deals they've made. We're not going to be in for these middle level guys. And Harrison Barnes is, is above middle, but not much above middle. And he's making $24 million. And if they had re- retained them, which they probably would have had to, if they didn't make the Durant move, they didn't get Durant, 
he'd be making more than everybody on the team this past season. And that would have been very uncomfortable in that locker room. It's just an interesting economic way to set this up where they're basically going to be uninvolved in the the middle tier of the NBA economics, and they are smartly not going to be involved in that. That is also why the Warriors are the spiritual successors to Miami in terms of the cap part of this, because what Miami illustrated better than any team before them was the upside and downside of individual maximum salaries being where they are. Because for Miami, they were low enough where those guys could come together without taking too much of a sacrifice. You know, they let a little bit... They left a little bit off the table. And really what the Warriors did was the same idea, just taken to another degree because of partially the cap spike. But more important than the cap spike was that they had these three other all-stars locked in on cheap contracts because of the way that's all timed out. And so what the Warriors did was they they took that exact approach and just applied it to the next level, but also combined it with some personal relationship stuff. My instinct is that LeBron, Bosh, and Wade were closer before they were teammates than Durant was with the Warriors guys. But they had Kerr and they had this system that that they, they, they were selling him on a product that he could see in a very different way. And it all worked out almost exactly as they expected. Yep. And, you know, they had Silicon Valley, you know, all the things that Bill Lake and Peter Gruber believed made this franchise worth, you know, at then record price 450, which I still couldn't, I couldn't believe they paid that much. And by the way, it's worth four times, five, five times as much now, five years later. But it's a total package. It's a invest in the ultimate value. If you can get the most valuable player in a system where contracts are limited, that there are max salaries, you can't lose because that guy, Kevin Durant, is how much more valuable than a middle-tier player? It, it's X times six, right? And he's going to get paid about two and a half times as much. You, you can't even, you can't measure what that is. And, you know, the other thing is they had Curry at $11 million per. Uh, that contract is the one that opened the door to a lot of things. And Curry being okay with Clay Thompson jumping him on the salary scale. With David Lee making more than him the whole time Lee was there with Draymond jumping him on the salary scale, with Kevin Durant coming in at three times or whatever, two and a half times what Curry was making uh, last year. All these things played into it that you have Curry. You know, Curry's the Duncan of this, as, as Kurt keeps saying. Curry is the central focus. That Without him, all these other pieces don't connect like this. Uh, without him, Draymond isn't the same player. Draymond's an incredible player, generational defensive player. It doesn't happen like this without Curry. Uh, same thing with Klay Thompson. And I don't think anybody recognizes that more than Klay Thompson, by the way. And if Curry's not there, Durant doesn't come because that, that's what makes this special. That's what makes this situation special. And he can come because Curry was making, what, 12.6 this year? <laughs> and, and so they had the space. If Curry was making what he should be making, it should have been 30, 31, then they don't have the space to do this. So all these, it's, it's the taking advantage of a situation. It's the, as I said yesterday, it's the maximizing of what your situation is. You can say they're lucky that Curry took that deal. Yeah, they're lucky. He wanted it. They gave it to him. They certainly didn't try to back him down and pay him $8 million a year. Uh, and they didn't bluff him and have him turn down and become a restricted free agent three years ago, by the way. And then you can play it out. If you have it on your books, you play it out. And they fill, they, they you know they, they game planned this out several years. And they said, here's where the... We get a cap spike, and which was being foreseen a year or two before it happened. We can do this, and they and this is the time we have to do it because Curry's going to be making thirty five million. It, it it will, and he will be making thirty five million this July. And they couldn't do it then, so it's just the, it's the opportunism, 
it's the game planning, uh, and, and it's the situation that would embrace Kevin Durant and the Kevin Durant embrace. It's all those things. Not all of their making exactly, but they sure take a, took advantage of it. They certainly did. I'm going to put you on the spot for a second just because I've never had the answer mm-hmm. to this question. I've been asked it a lot, and I think you have a better, better read on the pulse of this. If the whole Durant thing hadn't happened and Harrison Barnes had been a restricted free agent, the Mavericks made the same offer they did. Would the Warriors have matched it, in your opinion? Yeah, I believe they would have. I don't think they would have loved doing it, but they just can't lose that value. That, that That's what I heard throughout. Now, they were saying that about Azili too, early on, but then Azili's season was so bad, and clearly his playoffs were so horrible. I think at that point, their their stance on Azili changed logically that you could let Azili go. That wasn't going to be that big a deal. But the Barnes thing, you know, 20, what, 23 years old last summer, can play the four in the small ball, starting small forward, scoring ability, although obviously he was not great in the playoffs last year. But they couldn't let that value go. They did not love it. And there might have been a sign-and-trade situation. There might have been, you know, a whole different setup to this. But they would have not been able to just let him go for nothing. I, I just don't think the, the maxim, again, we talk about maximizing value. That would have been a major loss of value. If you don't, and who's going to play small forward for him, by the way? You know, that's a pretty important position. And then you can't go small. You know, I guess Iguodala, they could have moved Iguodala in there, but then you wear Iguodala down. The great value of Iguodala is him as the guy coming off the bench. He can play all kinds of different positions. So I think they would have matched. I'm not sure they would have kept him, but they would not have let him go for nothing. That $24 million was going to be on their books somehow. And it would have been tricky. And that's why the whole Durant thing was, other than it being Durant, was so imperative to them because they did not want that money on the books. And yet they need to keep the talent. They need to keep the maximize the talent angle. Could they have traded him for somebody young? Could they have moved him some other way? Could they have figured out a sign and trade with Dallas? I don't know. But man, and but by the way, Dallas made them offer knowing that the Warriors were going to let him go, right? I mean, yeah. if they if they didn't know the Warriors were going to let him go, I don't know that they make that offer because then it gets it gets trickier for them. So it's a very weird question. I don't know, it's a smart question. It's just there's so many different tangled things. I just know one thing. I, I kept hearing from the Warriors when they weren't sure they're going to get Durant that if they don't get him, they needed to retain the value of Barnes. And that was a very important thing to them. Whether that meant retaining him as a player, I don't know, but they were going to retain the value of him. That makes a lot of sense, and I appreciate your insight on it. Before we move on, I want to take a quick moment to tell you about Blue Apron, the amazing food delivery service that I've become such a huge fan of over the years. And you can like it for a lot of reasons. If you enjoy eating good food, Blue Apron is a wonderful way to do that. If you enjoy cooking, It is a wonderful way not only to try new things, but to build cooking confidence. And also, if you don't like shopping as much in a store, if you see something that looks good and you don't want to have to worry about making sure you have all of the spices, all of the small ingredients, Blue Apron is perfect for that because you get high quality ingredients in the right amount. And I look forward to not only when the deliveries come, but looking forward to picking it out. So the the plan that I'm on, I get to choose between four options. And I I was looking at for for two weeks from now, because generally, you know, it takes a little bit for them to prepare it. There's a spicy shrimp and fresh fusilli pasta that looks awesome and a, a seared chicken saffron couscous. And so you can go through their different options for different flavor palettes for different dietary restrictions or preferences, things like that. As I've said before, I'm a big fan 
of a lot of the seafood that they do and whatever you like, Blue Apron has something for it. And I've just been blown away by the quality of the product. There's a reason why I keep coming back to it. And I'm thrilled that they keep advertising with us and you can try it out yourself. You go to blueapron.com slash real GM, just like the name of this podcast. And you can get three meals for free, including free shipping on your first order. Again, that is blueapron.com slash real GM. So it's a URL and then you make your order and you tell them that you came from us. It's a great way to support the show and try out an awesome new product that, as you know, I am a huge personal fan of. So check it out. Blue Apron, the fantastic food delivery service. One more thing on this, I kind of where this is going, just because you and I talk about this a lot. The biggest misconception with the Warriors moving forward is with the idea of can versus will and should. So the question of can they do X in terms of salary, in terms of that is almost always yes. Because of bird rights, the way the structure is, you know, with Durant, especially if Durant takes less money, the only can that is a no is if he wants his full maximum this upcoming season, then it makes it harder to retain Iguodala and Livingston. Other than that, using bird rights, the answer to can is yes. But will gets more interesting because this team is going to be ludicrously expensive at some point. But I think that the the hard part for fans is we're probably just not going to know that answer for a while. Exactly. I mean, that the, I've raised this to, to Warriors executives, and, and you know they've kind of chuckled at the idea that they're going to be a three hundred million dollar payroll. You know, you could sketch it out and say that. You know, if if they have to give Clay the max in twenty nineteen, and same thing with Draymond in twenty twenty. You're looking at monsters, monster, monster payroll, but that's a ways away from now. And again, and, and to be perfectly blunt, we don't know what kind of players they're going to be in their early 30s. We don't know what the salary cap situation is going to be then, and we don't know if, if other teams are going to be bidding that much for these guys. Probably, maybe, I don't know, but it's impossible for them to say, okay, this is going to be a disaster then, because we don't know. You know, we haven't, we're not to that point. They have them in their max value right now. These guys in their late 20s, part of the system, having won two championships in three seasons, they're getting them for their max value. They get to the further point. If they're worth another $35 million or whatever that number is going to be in 2019, 2020, and takes them massively into luxury tax, take the Warriors in San Francisco Arena, if they're wanting to win more championships and they see the, the, the prospect of it, they'll take a hard look at, at keeping them both and possibly going towards a $300 million payroll. If it isn't going to happen that way, if they don't see that value, then they're going to have to say goodbye to a player or two. And I think they're okay with that at this point. We've seen them do that. I, I, I do point that out to people. This is a team, whatever you feel about Harrison Barnes and Andrew Bogan, if this is either, they like those guys or like them most of the time. And they just said goodbye to them in a second when Durant was available. I mean, a goodbye. And they can make those decisions, and they will do it based on the value. In their minds, again, there might be a mistake made here or there. They, they might have some issues on being able to replace all of them. All that's true. But I think people are a little overstressed about this because they're not there yet. They're basing it on what Clay would be worth right now. They don't have to make that decision for two years. They're basing it on what Draymond is be worth right now. They don't have to make that decision for three years. They know what Kevin Durant and Steph Curry are, are valued right now, and they're going to pay them. So while we know that there's going to be this massive you know, number put up for all of them. Just Steph and Durant alone are going to be huge numbers going off into the future. But 
Don't know what the Warriors' profit level is going to be, although we can assume it's going to be very high when they move into San Francisco. It's already high now. And we don't know at 32 and 33 for all these guys what they're going to be worth down the road. So I just think it's easy for the Warriors to say, let's play it out. We got them now. Let's win some championships and we'll see what everybody's worth. I think a great indicator, early indicator, is going to be what that Iguodala contract comes in. And and I've been taking some heat for saying I think it's going to be 10 to 12. And I understand why people would say he can get more. I get that. I mean, I totally understand it's on the table that he's more valuable than that. But he's 32. I don't see a lot of teams with $18 million openings on their on their cap that would do it for him and, and extend it out for four years or whatever it's going to take to get him to move from this situation. He loves Silicon Valley. He loves playing with these guys. He knows that this is a place where that, that his value, his playing value, let's put it that way, is maximized. Uh, and he doesn't have to play 38 minutes. He's not expected to score in double digits <laughs> except for once a week or whatever it is. I think it's going to be 12 at, at max, and I could be wrong. But I think it's going to be an interesting indicator for how this might play out down the road for their key guys. For their non-key guys, take the net minimum or go. That's okay. For their key guys, and let's, you know, they would all 32 now. We're talking about when Draymond and Clay are 31, 32, 33. We'll see what Igor does here. I'm very curious. I believe it's not going to be more than 12. I could be wrong. I think it might be less than 12, frankly. Uh, and we'll see. Now, again, we'll see if it's two or three years because I think the Warriors are going to have a strong, strong want to have him that too because we it, that ties to when Clay becomes a free agent in two years. If you have to go to all three, then that overlaps with what a huge new Clay deal might come out to be. But we'll see. That's negotiations. But I just don't, again, this plays into they've got their guys who they will pay whatever it takes or whatever is close to fathomable. Everyone else, and I'm going to put all in there because he's 32, they're, they're going to have a number for what they're going to come in. And if you like playing with the Warriors and you like playing for this situation, they will do what they can, but they're not going to go $18 million for all. They're just not going to do it. And I think that ties in with just their approach of just making sure that this is all worthwhile. And also the, the, the mentality that if you want to be a part of this team, there will be a sacrifice involved unless you're one of the best of the best. And that, that has been their mentality. I mean, that was true with Zaza Pachulia. It was true with David West. And Iguodala is, is important and not only sentimentally, but on the basketball court. But they're not going to make that kind of mistake because they know exactly where that leads. And the underrated lack of sentimentality move that I think back on that that was an indicator at the time, and I think you and I both wrote about this then, was trading Monte Ellis for Andrew Bogut. That was deeply unpopular in the fan base. It helped lead to the Chris Mullen retirement ceremony, just chaos that was that was there. But A, it was the right trade, and B, you know, the the benefits of it were felt not immediately, but pretty close to immediately, because A, they fell far enough to get Harrison Barnes in the draft, and B, Andrew Bogan ended up being central to their first championship. Absolutely. And C, it moved Clay Thompson into the starting yeah, lineup, which true. is where he had to be. And D, it, it made it clear that Steph Curry was the man. And all these things were part of that. I, you know, I think obviously the number one thing was to get a defensive mind in center, which is, you know, a real badass center, which they knew they were getting in Bogut. But also part of it yeah, was the whole mental aspect built up of this Monte Ellis thing, which was part of the old regime. You know, this was Joe Lacobs had bought the team, but the Monte Ellis thing was still existing where he's the guy the fans love. Oh, he scores so excitingly. It's so fun. Ah, the defense, ah, you know what? Who, nobody pays for that. That was the old way. You know, and you went into games where they just were, were going to lose. I just remember time after, you know, he's trying to guard Grant Hill when Hill was healthy and playing for the Suns. It was over. Done. Game was over. You couldn't win that game. The equation of 
it's not best for the team, and yet, gee, the fans love it. That was the old way. And whatever time he put in, whatever tickets he sold, it just couldn't be about that. And they had Curry, who basically was going to have to play that spot. And they had to know. They had, you know, it took them years. They kind of, they kind of knew it for years. They, it took them years to kind of figure it out. Don Nelson probably knew it from the moment he drafted Curry, but it, it took a couple years for everyone else to line up on that. Uh, and I didn't put this in the West piece I wrote. I probably should have, but I think West was a, just having West on board was a big part of that that they would be have the guts to move a fan favorite, that they would be about try to get bigger. They would try to be a multiple team, not just a score the ball team, and that that's okay. If the fans don't love it right away, who cares? We're going to win. This is what we believe in, and we don't need to tiptoe around the fans. Fans are great, but wins are more important. The fans are going to love that even more. And Wes was definitely on board for that from day one. I think Myers absolutely was too. He just does it in a less bombastic way. But it helped. And Bob Myers wasn't even a general manager at that point. He was assistant GM, although God knows he was going to be the GM. And everybody knew it. I just think it helped him to have West's voice there uh, to say, this is what we need to move to. For us to be a better team, forget about all the other stuff. Now, if they said, Joe, you're going to get booed at the Chris Mullen night, that's going to be, it might have made Joe resist it even more. But, and we all know Lacob's favorite player at the time was Monte Ellis, and he was the number one lean against us. He didn't prevent it from happening, which I think is, you know, a number, early credit to Lacob that they traded his favorite player and he did not stop them. But uh, for a guy who was injured, by the way, Pogan, who was injured and did not play till the next season, but it, it was a early sign that this franchise was going to make value decisions, not fan-based decisions or not scared decisions or not things that, you know, were based on anything other than what is the piece that makes us a better basketball team. And Wes was part of that. And that, that might have been one of his biggest things. And we all know that he was huge on Clay Thompson. He was huge on not trading Clay Thompson for Kevin Love. He was big on Draymond Green. But just the, just the surety that you can make moves like that, uh, trading Monte Ellis, the fan base was going to hate Maybe you don't sell as many tickets for a year or two, although I can't think they kept selling them. That was where Wes was important. I think that injection is still there. He's gone now, but it's still there, that they're making moves that are, they might not win the press conference. They might not look great on the day it happens, but man, this is what they have to do because it's what's best for the basketball team. That was hugely important at the time. They were there already at the time. That was something they did not have. And in fact, they made tons of moves that were completely against that just because they wanted to look good for the fan base. And they weren't sure what the value was anywhere else. Jerry West helped change that. And I, I do want to make sure I say that because it was a thousand percent necessary at the time. It was. And one of the biggest import, Im, important factors in that was changing expectations. So when they had Monte, it was, you know, the idea of being entertaining and bad was okay. And that then they shifted expectations to, okay, we can be good. To me, firing Mark Jackson was, okay, we're a playoff team. We think we can be better than that. And then the players had to do it themselves because part of what Kerr instilled in this team that Mark Jackson did not was the idea that they could and should get better shots than they were getting before. And so you saw it from the fan base that they had to think bigger than they had considered before to really be okay with it ownership and then the, eventually the players themselves yeah absolutely and you know that's interesting because players wanted mark jackson to stay so you yeah you kind of put it on the players by firing a guy you know the number one guy supporting mark jackson was steph curry your best player who would go on to win two mvps under the next coach so 
yeah, an interesting dynamic. That whole the, the Jackson thing involved a lot of different factors. Basketball aspect of it was my maybe the primarily primary one, but you know I think they could have they could have gone with him another year, whatever the basketball sense of it was, if he had better relationships with the people in the office. But both things kind of added together, and Mark was reckless, I think, with with, with some of the relationships he had or non relationships he had. And, and and thought that getting to the playoffs was enough, and that's his own call. It's part of his chip on his shoulder. It's part of he helped make Steph Curry and Clay Thompson think they're going to hit every shot they ever took. That's a large part of Mark Jackson. He helped this team become a defensive team. Those are all things that he's got to be credited with, and these are things that Steve Kerr continuously credits Mark Jackson with, to, to Steve Kerr's credit also. But yeah, they, you know, th- this is a, an ownership. This is a front office that when they make a decision on something that isn't going to be, they don't feel like this is the, the thing that's going to make them grow the most. They they pull the trigger. They go fast. Uh, and, and it's not about, gee, how is this going to look today? Because the Mark Jackson thing looked terrible, obviously. Looked awful. You go to the playoffs the year before, you get to the second round. And then uh, you get the next year you're in the playoffs and you go take the Clippers to seven games and then Bogut's out. Really, really not a popular move in a lot of circles. And they didn't for sure know who they were. You know, at the time I was like, okay, you can do this. You're allowed to do this because this is a, this is a, they hired Mark Jackson. It was the right call. If, if they feel like they got to move on from Mark Jackson, that can be the right. But you better have the right coach ready to go. And they didn't really have the right coach ready to go. I mean, they, they were hoping for Steve Kerr, and he was sort of lined up for the, for the Knicks at the time. They, you know, went the Stan Van Gundy route. They were going to, you know, they basically offered a Stan Van Gundy. He had a better offer from Detroit. They went, to, you know, they took a quick look at Fred Hoiberg. There were a lot of different ways this could have gone. But then Steve Kerr becomes available. And what does Steve, Joe Lakeup do? He says, whatever it will take to get Steve Kerr, I'm getting. And th- that's become a theme of this team. They just, they just kind of when when there's an opportunity, they go after the biggest thing out there, and they have gotten a lot of the big things out there. And when you maybe thought they weren't, and we all thought Kerr was going to go to the Knicks, everybody, the Knicks thought Kerr was going to go to the Knicks. Kerr thought Kerr was going to go to the Knicks. Then he had second thoughts, and, they, and the words fly in, and they get Steve Kerr. And I would emphasize this also down the road. I mean, we know the, the numbers are going to be crazy for everyone else. They're going to try to get some other good player down the road. Now, yeah. Not next year, but in two or three or four years. And we start talking about what they do with Clay or what they do with Trent. They're going to look at a, a young player to try to keep this going. They know they can't have 35-year-old you know, Kevin Durant and 35-year-old Steph Curry still carrying them. Maybe at that, but we'll see. It's not likely that they're going to be this good. They're not going to just, oh, that's fine. We'll just have an oldies tour until, you know, we'll be the Celtics and everyone will retire and then we'll be bad for five years. That's not going to be the plan at all. Now, I don't know who it's going to be, but this is not a franchise that just says, okay, now we don't have to make another move for 10 years. There's no way. And there's, they've got a nut names on the board already, and they've got it, you know, on the whiteboard. Here's when we're going to try to go get these guys, and here's where the numbers make sense. They're going to be up there. I mean, they're going to get them. But, man, this is that team. And they did it with Durant. Remember, they tried to get Dwight Howard. They tried to get a lot. Hey, there's a, there's whispers that they tried to get LeBron James last year. You know, whatever. You you try to get whoever you can. So this is not over. <laughs> These guys, Joe Lacob, you know Joe Lacob, Danny. He's not going to just say, I'm fine for now. There will be names that will be very intriguing to them, in, let's say, in two years, in three years. And... I could see Bill Lickup saying, wait a minute, instead of these other guys in their, in their to overpay X player into their 30s, 
maybe I can turn that into a young superstar who's 26 years old and we do this again. I could see him trying to do that. In fact, I would guarantee you he's going to try to do that in three or two or three or four years. Yeah, I definitely think they will try it as well. I want to end this on uh, something that I find fascinating with you is that earlier in your career, you covered the Shaq Kobe Lakers, and we've been hearing a lot about them recently in light of the Warriors success this year. How would you compare the, I mean, you don't need to do it year by year, but just like, how would you compare both those teams and the experience covering those teams? Very similar. (laughs) No question. Great preparation covering the Shaq Kobe. I was just there for the first year of that championship. I was there for the the year before that also, the whole Phil Jackson, the whole thing, Rodman the year before. Just the the preparation for the onslaught of national coverage, for the the blowing up of the most minor things and the major ESPN issues. That was just starting then. Shaq and Kobe was still the whole deal. The deal with Jerry West, (laughs) just an incredible preparation for what's happening here and what will continue to happen there. And I, I was around for some of the... Some of the uh, end of the, uh, you know, as the just the whole Laker vibe. That team with Shaquille and Kobe was differently because Shaquille and Kobe were different ages, had come up at different times, and, and there was a natural tension between them for a lot of different reasons. Uh, certainly not as similar minded as we see Durant and Curry and, and Draymond and all that. So that was just an inherent tension. That was there. That was not going to end. And we saw it break up after three championships uh, and, and then losing in the playoffs. There was a shelf life of that that we all knew, that one of those two was going to go. Just knew it. And Phil was going to have to tie it together. But I definitely see a Kerr-Phil comparison. Now, Kerr talks to Phil. He played for Phil. He's much more of a Popovich guy just mentally. You know, that he's closer to Popovich. But some of the things he does, the way he treats the players, the way they play, the share of the ball, the switching defense. And then Lickers did a little less of it because Shaquille just wasn't going to switch on everybody. But it was it's similar dynamic. It's kind of the balancing of egos. And then Phil had more egos to deal with. And Phil has more ego than anybody. But I see some of that incurred, just the kind of the playfulness, the creativity that you have to deal. You know, Phil did with Michael and Scotty. I see that with this team. Now, Steph is an entirely different central focus, but the, the little jibes, the little you know messages sent out, that is very similar to the way Phil did. It's how he played all these guys off each other. It's way, the way he played himself, uh, that he becomes a character in the whole you know storyline. And he, sometimes it's wry commentary. Sometimes it's leading the way. Sometimes it's just kind of in the middle of it. It's just... It's an interesting comparison, I think, more about how how a coach can have an interplay with stars, how stars react to the coach and how stars react to each other. Yeah, there was a big from that. Very different. They played diff- very different styles. You know, when you have Shaquille, it's a whole different thing. And I covered Shaquille at his absolute zenith. And, and when he was the most dominant player, it's his only MVP. Still, still hard to believe, right? Shaquille only won MVP uh, in his career. But I covered that, and he was the most dominant factor if, if – I had a line there. It's like after two possessions, I could tell if, if the Lakers were going to win the game or not. And it, it happened there. I was never wrong. I was never wrong on that. If you could guard Shaquille, you had a chance to win. If you couldn't guard Shaquille, it was over. Similar, I'd say it's similar with Curry. You know, if, if you can tell, maybe not two possessions, but three or four possessions that you can't cover Curry, game's over. There's a lot of those things covering talents of that magnitude are very, very comparable to me. But again, I go back and we're all watching the 30 for 30 with the Celtics Lakers thing. And I think it's very, very applicable to Warriors Cavs in, in some ways. 
I think the most comparable team historically to the Warriors now is the Showtime Lakers. I really do believe that. Just the feel of it, the style, the energy, central player, Magic is a different player than Curry, but in a very, the guys wanted to play with Magic. Guys want to play with Steph. And Durant isn't James Worthy, but, you know, just some weird, some interesting equivalencies uh, that I that I see to this, the, just the, the pieces put together. And whether Cleveland is there as many times as Boston was there for the Celtics, for, for the Lakers, I don't know. But, man, the, the Showtime Lakers, I think, is the historical equivalent to the Warriors right now. And by the Warriors, might mix, it might exceed that, obviously. It might fall short. But I think they're right there with the Showtime Lakers in historical impact with the NBA and in sports in general. And we're right in the middle of it. And I want to see how that sort of a team, again on the West Coast, incidentally, affects the next yep, generation yep. of players, too. Because it would, I think it would be a wonderful thing for basketball moving forward if this ball and player movement mentality that the Warriors have became a little bit more infectious. Because, you know, a lot of the kind of the hero ball and everything else is just a product of really talented individuals wanting to do that and players dominating the league. And if it gets to the point where they realize they can get better shots, they can win more championships that way, and we can just see more of that, just shift a couple of the top 10 players more into that mindset, we'll have a much better league for it. Totally agree. And I'd love to see it start in colleges, by the way. Yeah. Because college is getting a little hard to watch, uh, and maybe not getting hard to watch. It has been hard to watch. That Markel Fultz could be the clear number one overall pick. That Philadelphia is trading up a ton of picks just to get two picks up to trade to get Markel Fultz. And his, I watched a lot of Washington games. They were almost unwatchable. And you could say that for Ben Simmons a year before. I mean, I think college ball could really open up in a way and just take a look at what the Warriors have done. And, you know, they don't have the same talents, and the players don't shoot the ball like that, obviously. But can feature your talent instead of just bogging it down in these weird, constricted offenses. Jalen Brown with Cal, you know, I watched a ton of those games. You knew he was good. He got so few chances to, to show how good he was. I would love to see it start in the colleges. And, you know, Davidson was the opportunity for, for Curry to do it. You know, maybe if he plays somewhere else, he wouldn't have had the same opportunity. Well, you know, he'd still be great in the NBA. But, man, I'd love to see it start in a college game because it's tough to watch a lot of those games. Let's hope. Uh, anything else you feel like we need to discuss? No, I think we covered a lot. I, more than I thought I was going to. So, <laughs> no, I had a good time, Dan. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. You got it. Thanks again to Tim Kawakami for taking the time to come on. You can read him at the San Jose Mercury News. You can also follow him on Twitter at Tim Kawakami, T-I-M-K-A-W-A-K-A-M-I. And you can listen to the Warriors Plus Minus podcast he does, which is excellent. Another great insight onto this team, and, and he does incredible work. I mean this as no slight to anybody else, but to me, since I started with the Warriors in 2009 and, and before that even... He was and is the definitive Bay Area sports writer for me, and I know almost everybody, and I'm sure some of them might get their feelings hurt by that, but Tim is the best, straight up, full stop. And it was great to be able to talk with him. I've been lucky enough to get to have some of those conversations, not only back in the day, I, I alluded to this with Tim, Ethan, and I talking about the Durant possibility back in 2014, and you know, before any of us wrote on it, and we all did later on. And it was great to, to get to talk with him. And for those of you who are concerned, because as, as some of you will know, I stopped doing Locked on Warriors. Uh, I will be bringing back Warriors podcast content in some form in the in the future, but not for a little while. This podcast is not going to become a 
new Warriors podcast. It was just that I thought this was the definitive story of this past week, wanted to do it, and then we will move on. As Tim alluded to, we actually recorded this before the Markel Fultz trade went down, but when it was being heavily rumored. So that will be a centerpiece of next week's episode, which will be a draft review. I'm assuming it'll be with Sam Vecini. I have to make sure that he has the time, but we've had that kind of penciled in for a while now. So that's the tentative plan. And then I'll have something getting everybody ready for the off season because that's the week after. And I'm really excited for where this is all going. Nice to have a little bit of time to kind of breathe between these two things. Of course, now with the Markel Fultz trade and and possibly Boston doing something else, I'm recording this on Sunday afternoon. Still don't know exactly where they're going with all their stuff, but there will be a lot to think about, a lot to discuss, a lot to analyze, and that's exactly how I like it. So hopefully you've enjoyed this show in the many forms it has taken. My tentative plan is to do a lot of the similar off-season stuff this year that I did last year, doing the division capsules. So that means doing an off-season review, regular season preview. If you have input on guests, sure, you can send it. I, I have an idea with a lot of them. It just depends on availability and everything like that of, of who it's going to be. And then there will be interspersed other things, whatever comes up, talk about summer league, talk about whatever happens. There is no notable, from what I recall, international basketball this year. So I'm not going to be doing as much on that, but really excited to see where all this goes. And I was talking about it with, I think it was with Ben Golliver a couple days ago about how, maybe it was Bontemps, about how I'm excited for this offseason because it's a different kind of decisions. Last year, most of the time, it was seeing how teams were going to mess up and whether they were going to mess up their own future. I mean, I wrote a piece for the Sporting News about the Knicks. It was basically like, this is why the Knicks need to not do anything, why they need to not spend their money recklessly, and then ended with basically, and this is never going to happen. They're going to do it. And then they signed Joe Noah like a couple days. All right, I mean, they signed him basically in the first couple minutes of free agency. But we'll see where it goes this year because there are going to be bargains to be had. There are also going to be mistakes. And I think the trade market is going to be open in a very different way than it was last year. So it's going to be a lot of fun. And for those of you who know me, you know that it is something I care about a lot. My off-season previews this year are at Sports Illustrated. I love that I still get to say that phrase. A lot of them are up now. I think there are something like six or so left. I'm actually, as soon as I finish this, going to rewrite the Sixers one. I have submitted it before, but things changed a little bit. So that'll be coming out. I think that'll come out on Monday. So most of you will actually probably listen to this podcast and it will be out either then or shortly thereafter. And then I'm also working on CBA encyclopedia pieces for Real GM. That's going to be rolling out in full force. I'm working on a piece right now on the over 38 rule, change from over 36, not only talking about how it works, but also the changes from last time, all that sort of stuff together. And then going to do some other broad off-season stuff published by TBA. We'll see where it goes. So uh, there are a couple different outlets might show some interest in that. So we'll see where it goes. So you can always follow me on Twitter. If you have any input, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com at DannyLaRue on Twitter. You can also check out my other work for The Athletic. I do my Warrior stuff there. I might do some off-season stuff for the other great teams that they, for the teams they cover in such great detail, the Bulls and the Raptors and the Cavs. We'll see. We're, we're figuring that out right now. And of course, the Dunked On Basketball podcast, which I do with Nate Duncan, and then our Patreon, patreon.com slash We're actually going to do a subscriber-only mailbag 
soon, next day or two. We're figuring out exactly when, depending on timing. So lots of different stuff going on. If you want to support the show, leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player of your choosing. Subscribe, download every episode, spread the word as best you can. If that is word of mouth, great. If that is word of mouth via the internet, great too, whatever works. And you know, spreading the word is important. And so, you know, not every episode is going to be for everybody, but I love doing it. And the other great way to support the show is by checking out our sponsors this week. That is Blue Apron. You all know that I love Blue Apron. If you've listened to this, even just this episode, an amazing way to to cook and eat good food, blueapron.com slash real GM up to three meals for free, including free shipping. So that is enough rambling for now. I will be back at some point late next this, this upcoming week with Draft Insight. It's going to be awesome. Really, really pumped about it. And thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. And I'm Sean. And And we're we're a Henny couple. This past year, Sean took me to an escape room to celebrate the anniversary of our first date. Near the end, he got down on one knee and proposed with a gorgeous radiant cut diamond solitaire ring. Our experience working with Sills Associate William was beyond anything we could have expected, both for the engagement ring and our wedding bands. Check out Henny Jewelers online or on social. You'll be glad you did. Henny Jewelers, they're your jeweler for life. 